Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Mark Chandler, the host of the program. Our American Heritage a program where we explore in depth the American experience from this beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome back as our special guest, Elaine Wells-Harmer. Elaine, welcome back to the program and thank you for coming back and sharing with us. Thank you so much, Arch. It's truly an honor to be on your program. Thank you. And Elaine, where are you presently right now? I am just north of Salt Lake City. We are up in the mountains that overlooks the Great Salt Lake. And what is your temperature? 22 degrees this morning. I think it has warmed up to 28 maybe. But when I went out this morning to feed my chickens, their water was a big block of ice. (laughs) So it's cold here. Well, our engineer is in um, the northern parts of Valley Forge up in Douglasville area, and it's cold out there. And I'm sitting here in uh, Palm Beach, Florida, and it's 82 and sunny. So we have a a large... I'm so jealous. Well, you know you and your husband have an open invitation anytime you'd like to come. You are so kind. I would love to take you up on that. Well, it's an open door, so you're welcome. Okay, I'm going to talk to David. (laughs) Please do. Please do. And don't ask him. Tell him. (laughs) (laughs) That's a better way to do it. Or or strongly suggest. How is that? (laughs) How is that? Okay. Okay. You you shared a little, you shared a lot in in your first show with your background and your education. And you were sharing with our listeners about your interest in the Civil War in that time period. Would you, again, reiterate that? And let's pick up where we had left off with the beginning of the healing at, at Appomattox. What perks your interest in the Civil War time period? It's really the characters who are involved, the star players, Lincoln, Grant, and Lee. I'm just fascinated with their integrity, their characters, and how they made peace and unity possible. Without those three men, I believe it wouldn't have happened. Our nation would have remained fractured. They were statesmen. They were noble, dignified, and each of them wanted to do the right thing. It wasn't a matter, you know, I know for Lincoln and Grant, it wasn't just a matter of winning. Lincoln especially was focused on what do we do after we win? Yes. And yes. how do we bring the southern states back in? And, you know, he was telling after the surrender when he gave his speech, which turned out to be his last speech, he's trying to convince the northerners that, you know, like he's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son saying, mm-hmm. you know, welcome them back with open arms, you know, just just bring them back and forgive them. And they're our brothers now. You know, I love what Lincoln said. Several people, maybe even more than several, have said that, you know, they were the ones who had this conversation with Lincoln. But in one article, it's uh, a woman who says, how can you be so nice to the rebels? Because they're our enemies. I mean, they ought to be destroyed. And, you know, they didn't feel quite so magnanimous as Lincoln did. And he replies, Madam, how can I better destroy my enemies than by making them my friends? And, you know, that attitude, I mean, think if we had a president like Lincoln, say, for the last eight to ten years, think how he could pull these two sides together. I mean, I think our nation is 
as fractured as it has ever been since the Civil War. And I, I think, how would it be to have a president like Lincoln, who isn't small-minded and petty and calls his enemies nasty names, his character and his personality and his wisdom and vision, man, those were unique qualities in the history of our country. I mean, I put George Washington and Abraham Lincoln up on these pedestals, both of them just such remarkable, extraordinary men. And so just that by itself, seeing how Lincoln made healing possible and paved the way for peace, I just think that if there had been anyone but Abraham Lincoln, I don't think it would have worked out. And Elaine, President Lincoln gave, I believe the number is 60 speeches during the Civil War. And oftentimes, mm. uh, he only said four times in any of his speeches that he referred to the southern states as the Confederate States of America. He always referred mm. to them as states, as states. Mm. And, you know, you being a lawyer, you understand the technical side of Lincoln being a lawyer. Lincoln yeah. did not believe that the southern states constitutionally could actually leave the Union. But Lincoln... Yeah. Lincoln viewed the southern states. Uh, they were actually family members that were in rebellion, but they were still family. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, they had never left. This was just a dispute among family members. Among a dispute. And, th and we see that particularly, I mean, we honestly see that at the Gettysburg Address when f the 272 words, he never refers to the north or the south at all. But these dead mm. have not died in vain. But we're, we're going right. to have a new new birth of freedom. And so, again, as you mentioned in your first show, that the vision that Lee had or Grant had for the long-range situation that they found themselves in at Appomattox, Lincoln was really the one who saw that from the beginning. How can we heal yes. this nation once this terrible situation has passed? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, I remember one time years ago, one of our sons said he was going to run away from home. And, and you know, of course, most little kids are going to run away from home because they're being disciplined for something. And I, I yeah. eventually I asked him where he was going to go and what he's going to do. And I eventually said to him, I said, you know, son, you can run away from home. You can change your name. You can create a whole new identity. But you will always be my son because you have. Oh, and that was the mindset yeah. of Lincoln, and it permeated through Grant, and ultimately it permeated through and into Robert E. Lee. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so share with and, us, please, what was going on? What happened at Appomattox? What, what went on there to begin? Because your title is "Let the Healing Begin: The Surrender of Appomattox." Take us through it and give us a picture of what was going on there between General Robert E. Lee and General Ulysses S. Grant. Well, first of all, you know. I have to say, I always thought, and maybe others did too, I always thought that the surrender had occurred at a courthouse. <laughs> I, I learned something, you know, while I've been researching. Courthouse meant county seat in those days. So, you know, it took place at a, at a farmer's home. And who knows? I mean, it's possible the McLean home was picked by Lee's aide just because Wilmer McLean was the first property owner he encountered. Or maybe he was just the only property owner who hadn't fled the village. But, you know, it's this lovely farmhouse, 
and just perfect for the occasion. And I love that General Grant is very solicitous and very concerned for Lee's respect. You know, the last thing he wants to do is humiliate him. Yes. Uh, he remembers him. Lee doesn't remember Grant very well, but they had met 20 years before, mm-hmm. and Grant always remembered Lee, and he just looked up to him. I mean, he was like 15 years older. I think Grant was like 43 at this time, mm-hmm. and Lee was probably 58, which is remarkable to me because when I look at pictures of Lee during the Civil War, I always thought he was like 70. Yes. And he was just a year older than I am now. And Lincoln, Lincoln was 56, a year younger than I am now. And he looks like an old man. I mean, I think it was just the war really aged them. And anyway, so when they get to Appomattox and you've got Lee dressed in his best uniform and looking every bit like the Southern gentleman and son of a noble family, and he comes in and then he has to wait for Grant. I think it was like half an hour or something, and Grant comes in looking really dirty and (laughs) he had to borrow someone's jacket. He apologizes, but he had just come from the troops and he hadn't had time to freshen up. And, you know, so they're, yeah, they're chit-chatting and they're talking about how they knew each other. But then Robert E. Lee wants to get to the point. And so he's expecting mass imprisonments or executions or parading of defeated enemies through northern streets. But Grant is so magnanimous. And this stems from Lincoln, you know, when Grant knew exactly how Lincoln felt. He didn't want to put anyone in prison. He says, look, if Jefferson Davis and the others, you know, want to escape, that won't bother me none, is how he says it. (laughs) At least, well, that's in the movie Lincoln. I love that part where he's on the porch with Grant and Mm -hmm. uh, he has just gone through Richmond and seen the devastation and all the dead. And he says, you know, I just want to stop the fighting. I want them to reconcile peaceably. I don't want any prisoners. Just treat them well. Let them keep their horses so they can go back to their farms and plant crops and let them keep their arms. I mean, I guess that was Grant's decision. He said, um, yeah, go ahead and keep your arms, your personal sidearms. Just give us anything that is like official property of the Confederacy, but anything that's yours personally, your horses, your sidearms, promise that you won't use them against us again, the guns, not the horses, (laughs) and then, you know, you can go home. And Lee is just stunned. And then to top it all off, and Grant says, hey, I've got 25,000 rations for your men, you know, I bet they're hungry. And that kind of kindness and graciousness is just just remarkable. I mean, I can't keep using that word, and but it, it really is. It's just extraordinary, the terms of surrender and how just how lenient they were. Lincoln just didn't want any retribution against the former Confederates. And, you know, many of the Northerners are calling for their heads. They're saying you're being yes, way yeah. too lenient. And he's like, sorry, this is what we need to do. And, um, you know, Go ahead. 
In our first segment, we talked about so many of Lee's generals and officers were recommending that he continue on and don't surrender. Let's have a guerrilla war. On the other side of that, there was many people in Lincoln's, President Lincoln's uh, staff that, as you said, yeah. they had this tremendous anger towards the Confederacy, particularly oh, the Secretary yeah. of War, Edmund Stanton. And it was yeah. Stanton who took Lee's home at Arlington and then made it into a national cemetery so Lee could never get that land back. So Lincoln, yeah. on the other side, yeah. had these people in his ear recommending to him that we punish the Confederacy. We cannot allow this to go on without severe punishment. And again, we see from Lincoln's point of view, this willingness to forgive and just wanting the healing of the nation to start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, in his, I was trying to think of the, the quote that I love so much from President Lincoln's last speech. And he says something like, uh, finding the Southern states safely at home. I love that. Safely at home. And he says it would be utterly immaterial whether they had ever been abroad. Let's all join in, let's all join in doing the acts necessary to restoring proper practical relations between these states and the union. Yeah, he doesn't refer to them as, you know, never calls them the enemy. Those are just yep. the states that didn't leave the union. They were fighting against us, but they were always part of the family. Yeah, as you said, the prodigal son. But one of mm-hmm. General Lee's last statements was, I surrender my army to General Ulysses S. Grant, which meant he was recognizing Grant being the general of the Union Army. He said, I not only surrender my army to General Ulysses S. Grant, but I also surrender our army to the graciousness of President Abraham Lincoln. So he he was then acknowledging also that Lincoln was the president of the Union. So he was making a bold Uh, statement by saying that at Appomattox. I love that. General Grant pardoned all the Confederate soldiers and he pardoned all the Confederate officers from the recommendation of President Lincoln. What Mm -hmm. else transpired there when Robert Lee surrendered his army? Because they had to come to Appomattox and lay down their weapons. Give us a Yeah. Well, so there were two ceremonies, as you know, and I think both of them are just extraordinary. But yeah, Lee asked, he said, can my men keep their guns? And Grant has already signed the surrender papers, and he says, well, I'm not going to amend it, but yeah, I will agree to let your men keep their guns and their horses. And Lee is just, he's just so grateful. Mm -hmm. And he feels like, you know, he's been treated with such respect. And, you know, the same thing happens at the official ceremony. Joshua Chamberlain, another one of my heroes, He's the one who General Grant has asked to receive the official surrender and look over the transfer of property and other details. And so on the morning of the 12th, three days after Lee's surrender, Chamberlain lines up his brigade on both sides of the highway that led from Appomattox to Lynchburg. And the Confederates are lined up opposite them on the hill nearby. And then you have the two Confederate generals, Gordon and Stonewall Jackson, and they start down the valley and approach the Union lines. And Chamberlain instructs his officers to come to the position of marching salute, where they hold their muskets by the right Mm -hmm. hand, perpendicular to the shoulder, as each Confederate soldier passes by them. And then when Gordon reaches Chamberlain, a bugle sounds and the entire line comes to attention. 
And Chamberlain wrote his memoirs like 40 years later, but he recalls in detail how General Gordon looked so dejected and downhearted as he was riding on his horse. But then at the sound of that snap of arms, the salute, Gordon is just caught and his whole face is transformed and he instantly assumes the finest attitude of a soldier and he wheels his horse, faces Chamberlain, touches his horse gently with the spur so that the animal rears up and as he wheeled, the horse's head goes down with a graceful bow mm -hmm. and it's just this beautiful ballet and General Gordon drops his sword point to his toe in salutation, and this whole time there's not a sound. There's no trumpet, no drums, no cheers, uh, and Chamberlain says, you know, there was just this awful stillness as if it were the passing of the dead, and Gordon never forgets that. In his own memoirs, he calls Chamberlain one of the knightliest soldiers of the Federal Army. Yes. And it's just this phenomenal sight. You have Confederate soldiers turning slowly towards Chamberlain's line, and they lay down their arms, about 27,000 total. And then they kiss their ragged battle flags and lay them down also. And, you know, you have so many of these Confederates with tears just running down their cheeks. And the Union soldiers, even though... They didn't move, and they were very dignified and respectful. There were not a lot of dry eyes on their side. There was such emotion on both sides. And so, as Grant had promised Lee, Chamberlain only required Confederate property. All their officers, the Confederate officers, kept their personal sidearms. All the soldiers kept their horses. And... The men gave their word of honor. They would never again fight against the flag of serve against the flag of the United States. And then they were just free to go. Mm -hmm. And so it echoes exactly what happened three days before at Appomattox. There's that graciousness and that magnanimous attitude of we don't want to humiliate these soldiers and lord it over them. They're our brothers. And yeah, we happen to win. But let's make peace, let's start the healing, let's make it work. And Elaine, at Appomattox for the surrender, General Lee wasn't there, General Longstreet wasn't there, but he sends out General Gordon. And the reason he did that was because he thought that the anger possibly towards two of us, Lee and Longstreet, would be very uh, overwhelming for someone not to take advantage of. General Grant yeah. is technically not the commanding officer of the Army of the Potomac, it's George Meade. And Meade, yeah. Grant doesn't have Meade there either, but he sends General Chamberlain to accept the surrender. And the reason, or do you want to share the reason? Or why Chamberlain? Um, you know, I, to be honest, I, I don't know. I just assumed that Chamberlain had such a storied history, you know, leading the battle in Gettysburg. And his men withstood repeated assaults from the Confederates, Little Round Top, and drove him away with a downhill bayonet charge. He gets uh, Lincoln presents him with the Medal of Honor. I mean, everyone in the Union has heard about him, and he's just a remarkable soldier. And he's promoted to general. And 
I think that must have been why Grant wanted him to receive the official surrender. He was just a great leader, and Grant knew that his personality was very peaceful. Even though he had led this amazing bayonet charge, that was the only option left to them. It was either be killed or kill the Confederates. But Chamberlain was not a soldier by profession. You know, he's a professor. He later becomes president of a college, governor of Maine. So you probably know more than I do about why Grant asked Chamberlain. Well, you're, all of those reasons you, you gave us are absolutely accurate. It's everything. It's Chamberlain's character. It's demeanor. What he did at Gettysburg. He had been wounded six times. Twenty horses had been shot out from underneath him. He'd come back to the Union Army. We think the other main reason is Grant did not want a general out there who would cause anger in the Confederate soldiers who were surrendering. So he didn't send out one of his generals that could potentially be from a southern state. He sent out a general from Maine. He sent out a general from Maine to accept the surrender from General Gordon. So there's a lot of reasons why those decisions were made and they weren't made lightly. So as we come Mm -hmm. to the, as you shared, Appomattox is not the end of the war. There's two other Confederate armies still out there fighting. General Johnston's men and John Bell Hood down in in Texas area. Ultimately, they do surrender. And then we begin to go through this process of the healing and a whole other show, Elaine, would be what President Ulysses S. Grant did to try to continue the healing and reconstruction. But we come to the yeah. end of the war, we come to the end of the battles, and now another whole battle starts with how do we heal the wounds of this nation? And mm-hmm. your point is so poignant. Uh, we need leaders like that today to heal the wounds of yeah. this nation. We, we look at these men. And these are bitter enemies for four years. There is over 750,000 Americans killed during this war. The South is devastated, but we need to heal the wounds of the nation. And that was more prevalent than anything at Appomattox. Absolutely, yeah. It's Lee and Grant and their attitude towards each other and President Lincoln about beginning to heal the wounds. That has Uh taken a long, you know, a long, long time for us to finally get to that point. So, yeah, exactly. So, I, thank you. I love. Oh, you're welcome. No, please go. You, I interrupted your thought. Oh, well, I just wanted to finish by saying that Lincoln remained so compassionate to the vanquished South, and he reached out this healing hand. He wanted to help the South. He wanted to help them get back on their feet and extend a path out of poverty. He had so many great ideas about reconstruction that he talked about in his final speech. And, oh, I just eh, would have been so great to see what he could have done had he not been assassinated. Andrew Johnson was just a poor substitute. But at least, you know, they did continue on with the process of reconstruction. But I just think it would have been handled so much more beautifully with Lincoln in charge. And the flip side of Andrew Johnson is that got us to Ulysses S. Grant as president and what he tried to yeah, do yep. <laughs> to help, to help yeah. reconstruction. So, well, Elaine, yeah. thank you. Yeah. I mean, th- these are so powerful th- thoughts to, to think about as we look back and how did we get through this time period? What was the groundwork for the healing of this nation? And I'm reminding the 100th anniversary, uh, the United States had a postal stamp with Appomattox on it. And the picture of soldiers there, and the phrase, with malice towards none. Mm -hmm. 
at yeah. this point. So thank you, Elaine, yeah. for having these thoughts and sharing these things with us. We get past the battles, we get past the killing and the, and what happened there, and the, with the idea of now it's time to heal. And what can we do to yeah. have unity back in this union? So thank you, Elaine. This, mm -hmm. is, this has been powerful and thought-provoking information that you've given to us. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I am nowhere near your level of expertise, so I'm really, truly honored that you would ask me to talk about it. So thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. As, as I said to Elaine earlier, we are all students. You're all students. So. <laughs> yes. well, thank you. Yes. So this is 1180 AM WFYL, working for your liberty. <laughs>